Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. With Halloween behind us and submissions closed, I don't have a whole lot of housekeeping to share with you this week. So rather than slouch around here, I think we'll get right on the road. We do have plenty of sights to see. For the next two weeks, we're going to explore the beautiful area of Cypress Hills, a huge natural park that rises up from the surrounding prairie, straddling the borders of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Lush forests, wide open grasslands, pristine lakes and marshes. It's the kind of place that draws in life of just about every kind. Over 700 species, as it turns out. But the diversity isn't limited just to nature. 
the area's got a rich, often dark, history, too. Fort Walsh, on the southern edge of Cypress Hills, was one of the most well-supplied and heavily armed garrisons of the Northwest Mounted Police. And in the winter of 1875, they needed every man they could get to batten down the hatches and stoke the fires. It was, after all, one of the coldest winters ever recorded in Saskatchewan, and they needed a warm place to wait out the blizzards. He, however, was still fifteen miles out from Fort Walsh, he guessed, when the flakes started to fall. They began gently, drifting through the bare, grasping fingers of willows and birch. But with every step, the snow became thicker, the wind higher, until the once beautiful flakes became daggers of ice driving deep into his flesh and the forest was swept away beneath the swirl of blinding white. The young constable had been out on patrol near the park's border when the weather started to turn. He knew things could get ugly quickly, but even still, this blizzard had caught him off guard. Fifteen miles, he thought again. Boiler Creek was just over there so it couldn't be more than fifteen miles home. His horse, much like the constable himself, was young and headstrong, and the man was thankful it somehow seemed to know where it was going. Out here there wasn't much shelter to be had, and even if they did find a place to stop, the temperature was plunging fast. They'd never be able to light a fire, and they'd certainly never last the night. They had no choice but to make for the fort. The horse shoved his way through mounting snow, struggling through drifts that threatened to swallow them whole. All around the poor creature's face was frozen, crystals of ice clinging to its nostrils and muzzle and eyes, fed by every steaming breath. The Mountie wrapped the reins around unfeeling, frozen fingers and slumped in the saddle. The cold was beginning to subside, but he was starting to feel lightheaded, and seemed to drift in and out of consciousness as his horse continued to stumble through the night, moving slower and slower, until finally it stopped head down. The man was so tired. All he wanted to do was let go fall over into a nice, soft snowbank, and let the darkness take him. But as he blinked and rubbed ice from his lashes, he was shocked to see a woman standing there in front of him, a beautiful woman with long, flowing black hair, dressed in simple, light clothes. Métis, he was sure of it, she gently placed one blissfully warm hand on his ice-stiffened knee and smiled up at him. He gazed back, deep into her brown eyes, feeling a warmth kindle in his chest. Without saying a word, she slipped the reins from his frozen fingers, grabbed the bridle, and began to effortlessly lead the horse through the trees. 
She never spoke, but whenever he'd feel his eyelids become heavy and begin to close, he'd see her gazing back at him, and her warm smile would pull him back from the edge of sleep. Each time, though, he'd get closer to the abyss. And eventually, even she couldn't hold him back any longer. His eyes closed one last time, and he toppled off the horse and into the snow. He awoke in the infirmary. His entire body burned, and his hands and feet and nose itched something fierce. He lost a couple of toes, a finger, and the tip of one ear to frostbite. But he'd come close to losing a whole lot more. They'd found him, he learned from his comrades, just at the edge of the Fort Palisade, where he'd fallen. His horse, they said, had miraculously brought him all the way home through the blizzard. No, he corrected. It was the woman. She'd led me back. Where is she? Is she okay? But all he received were confused looks. There were no other tracks in the fresh snow, they said. Just the exhausted horse, and from you where you fell. But he refused to believe it. Someone must have seen something. She was there. She'd saved his life. But no matter who he asked, the best he got was a patronizing glance and the suggestion that he might have come down with some kind of snow madness. Until, that is, an old Métis woman who worked in the fort overheard him describing the woman to a fellow constable. That was Genevieve, she said. She was my friend. You know her? he asked. Knew her. She died many years ago. She was so beautiful and kind, and she loved horses very much. She died of fever and was buried down by the creek. Sounds like she took a liking to you, though, young man, she cackled. Lucky for you. Benevolent frontier spirits are one thing, but there's another legend that goes back even further. Maybe more of an oddity than a legend, I guess, since no one seems to know the origin or purpose behind it. It's been reported for as long as humans have been inhabiting Cypress Hills, and still occasionally happens today. A phenomenon known as the Shadow People. An encounter typically goes a little something like this. After a long day of swimming, fishing, and picnicking around the area of Loch Levin, you and your friends decide to visit the lounge to cap off the night before heading back to your campsites. You have a couple of drinks and some great conversation, and before you know it, it's just after midnight, and you decide to hit the hay. Walking back along the road toward the campground, the night is perfectly still and moonless. And when you look up in the gaps between the sparse amber glow of the street lamps, you can see the gauzy shimmer of the Milky Way behind the pinpoint lights of the stars. You pass under the street lamps and watch as your shadows shorten from behind, catch up to you, 
then elongate in front, stretching out until they meld back into the darkness around you. Each light you pass, the dark shapes of you and your friends is clear, almost mesmerizing, and then you notice something unusual out of the corner of one eye. As you pass under the next street lamp, something seems different. And at first you're not sure exactly what. But before you can fully register, you're past the puddle of light and back into darkness. It's a few dozen feet before you come under the glow of another lamp. And as you pass under it, you suddenly figure out what's bothering you. No one else seems to notice, and you slow to make sure you're not losing it or seeing things. But it's there, all right. You're sure. A fifth shadow. You can see one shadow joined at your feet, and one joined to the feet of each of your three friends, and another shadow that seems to be following along in step. A human-shaped shadow that doesn't seem to have any discernible source. The hairs along your neck stand up, despite the warm summer night air. Some part of your brain is telling you to avoid it, not to stare directly at it. And you fight to listen. And then you're through the light and back into darkness. You can't see the shadow anymore, but you swear you can feel it. That there's an unknown presence there with you, walking unseen yet uncomfortably close. No one's talking now, as if they can feel it, too. And you feel a mixture of nervousness and anticipation as the next light nears. Three steps in. Four steps. You can see it faintly out of the corner of your eye as your long shadows begin to shorten. You suddenly wheel on it, startling your friends from their silence. The shadow lingers only for a few seconds, almost perfectly humanoid. Then suddenly it dissolves. It doesn't fade or simply disappear, but seems to disperse like black mist into the night. Your friends laugh at you as you try desperately to explain, but there's a nervous edge to it. It's not until the next day, though, when your story is corroborated by the locals, that they start to take you more seriously. And you silently vow that, on the slim chance you ever wander Cypress Hills after midnight again, you'll make sure to bring a lantern. Our story this evening comes from Jude Reed. Jude lives in Scotland and writes in the gaps between working full-time as a doctor wrangling her kids, and trying to wear out a border collie. She likes climbing inadvisably large mountains and running away from zombies, and drinks a powerful load of coffee. Children of the Night, join me for Jude Reed's The Light Keepers, a Tales to Terrify original. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mr. McCallan, I was perched on the ledge outside the lighthouse on Kailkvar, the white tower rising in a dizzy spider to the midsummer sky, while waves crashed onto the rocks below. My hands ached from gripping the cast iron rungs driven into the rock, my cheeks flayed raw by the relentless salt spray. I'm Ian Campbell, I've been sent by the board. From beneath the southwester, two hard blue eyes bored into mine. The face they belonged to was ruddy its lower half obscured by a full beard that must once have been black, now streaked badger-like with white. I'm to be assistant keeper here until the relief ship comes. The eyes flicked from the arbroath, now receding out into the North Sea, to the old canvas sack of provisions at the bottom of the rungs. I wondered if his intention was to ignore me entirely and imagine me to life like a gannet on the rock while he resumed his duties inside. At last he nodded and walked back through the lighthouse door. 
I took that as my invitation to follow, entering the damp gloom of what was to be my home for the next six weeks. I had done thorough research before leaving Edinburgh. The lighthouse was one of Stevenson's finest, built when the industry has come into the first flowering of its maturity. At almost 40 yards tall, the building towered over the little string of islands marking the treacherous reef just below its surface as a warning to any ship that passed. The trip in on the Arbroath's jolly boat had given me a brief glimpse of the village on the larger island. There, a handful of locals managed a precarious stone-tossed existence, while the smaller Kylikwerk was only home to gannets, petrels and puffins. On the furthest part of the spit, past the lighthouse, onto a promontory of rocks that pierced the surface of the water like the jawbone of a monstrous fish, I had seen what looked like a pile of flotsam, tightly lashed together with rope. That was a common enough sight on the outer islands, of course, but what had caught my eye was the curve of an old-fashioned ship's bell in its midst, lashed down tight and mute. Where should I stole my bag? I asked McCallan. He was already climbing the spiral staircase and I hastened after him, leaving a trail of water behind me. He took me past a galley, a storeroom, and through a double door into the living quarters. They were furnished with a bookcase, a bed, a patchwork quilt and a wing chair by the window. From the turkey rug on the floor to the fine plaster cornice, the chamber had clearly been decorated with the principal keeper's comfort in mind, but it showed no signs of recent habitation. You can sleep here, he said. I hesitated. He took my bag and tossed it onto the bed. Unpack your things. I'll bring up the supplies and store them. Work's done for the day. You may as well get your rest and begin tomorrow. Through the narrow, leaded window, I could just make out the fading shadow of the arbroath as it reached the horizon. What's the bell for, sir? Out on the spit? He turned, hand on the door handle, thick brows low over his eyes. It was here before the lighthouse, he said, for when the ship neared the rocks. There's no need for it now. We're here to keep the light. In the morning, McAllen introduced me to my duties, and the days on Kailakvar settled into a rhythm as regular as the spin of the lamp. Each day, I rose to scrub the floors, clean out the hearths, and prepare food for the day. I ate my porridge alone at the kitchen table, washed out my pan and bowl, then filled the oil containers to heave them up the two hundred spiral steps to the top of the lighthouse. More often than not, the light room door would be open as I staggered breathless and sweating inside, when McCallan taught me how to fill the lamp, trim the wick and set the mechanism spinning on its frictionless pool of mercury. Once the reflectors were shining like stars, I would perch on the outer balcony and scrub my way around the windows with a rag and bucket. In the clear summer sunlight, the work was almost a pleasure. Come winter, this would be a different experience altogether. When the maintenance of the lamp was completed to McCullen's satisfaction, we would eat again. Hard bread, cheese, jam, a little dried meat, and the old man would retire to his makeshift bed in the light room a few hours before dusk. Wake me before you go to sleep, he would say, placing one shaking hand on my shoulder. We must keep the light, you and I. You understand? I wondered if his obsessive solicitude stemmed from some previous failure, a wrecked ship, lives lost on his watch, and though to sleep in the lamp room is firmly against regulations, 
I lacked the courage to challenge him. I understand, sir. The claw on my arm would tighten, then relax. Good lad. Then turning to leave. You mustn't forget. It was a daily ritual, and I observed my part without fail. Only the constantly locked door of the lighthouse made me ill at ease, restless like an animal in a cage. I had been in the lighthouse almost a month when I saw the locals for the first time. As usual, I was asleep before sunset, and when I woke, the sky was dark and voices were rising from the rocks far below. Fascinated, I pulled the patchwork quilt around my shoulders and hurried to the window. In the intermittent light from the tower, I could just make out a group of villagers, woolen shawls pulled over their heads, a dozen or more standing in a circle by the water. One of them, a woman, perhaps leading some sort of ceremony, beckoned to another, who stepped into the centre of the group, a tightly wrapped bundle in her arms. The wail it made was the high-pitched cry of a newborn. Could this be a baptism? The pilot of the Ardroth had been quite adamant that there were no minister of religion on the island, nor had Macallan observed the Sabbath in my time with him. Perhaps this was a half-pagan ceremony to take the place of a proper christening, I thought, with the sea serving in lieu of the baptismal font. The leader of the ceremony gestured to the water, and the circle parted to allow the woman and child down to the water's edge. To my surprise, she kept walking until the waves covered her knees, her hips, her waist, the bundle in her arms resting just above the surface. A low chanting rose from the assembled women, half a prayer and half a song. For a moment, I thought I saw the northern lights reflected in the water, a faint greenish-blue glow that spread toward the shore. But when I glanced up, the sky was dark. By the time I looked back, the woman had rejoined the others, and the wailing had ceased. Silent, with heads bowed, a solemn procession left the beach in single file. Quite unable to make any sense of what I had just witnessed, I returned to my bed and fell into an uneasy sleep. I saw the islanders last night, I said to McCallan, as we worked on the reflectors the following morning. Though he said nothing, the squeak of his polishing cloth in the mirror stopped. They were on the shore, women I think, and a baby with them. There was a silence from the other side of the lamp. Through the gaps in the drapes I watched the clouds chase each other across the sea-grey sky. I opened my mouth to ask if he had heard me, then closed it again. He knew what I had asked, and had chosen not to answer. I worked on in the quiet until the glass was sparkling like new. When I rose to leave, Macallan was waiting at the door. His hands were shaking perhaps a little more than usual. We attend to our business and they to theirs, he said, and the look on his face invited no further questions. A storm rolled in the following week, heavy grey cloud blanketing the sky from horizon to horizon. Macallan took to keeping the lamp lit at all times, maintaining his vigil for as much of the day and night as he could manage. When the lure of sleep became irresistible, he would instruct me to watch the lamp from a hard, high-backed chair while he took a few hours of rest. If I dared to close my eyes, he would be alert in an instant and cursing me for a lazy fool. So in the end, I had no alternative other than to stare unblinking into the light, the afterimage painting my vision with green. Two days went by. After 48 hours of constant light-keeping, I was exhausted. My sleep pattern in disarray my meals reduced to a few hasty mouthfuls at any time I passed the galley. Day and night had lost their meaning and my image in the glass was a dark-eyed spectre. 
the world seemed to have been infected with McCallan's tremor. It was only on the third day that the lightkeeper realised I'd become useless and sent me to my bed with the promise to watch the lamp for as long as I needed to recover. He broke his promise, of course. I had no idea how long I had slept when I awoke to find his hand on my shoulder and his sour breath in my face, but it was not enough. Up, lad, he said, heaving me up from my bed, and dazed I allowed him to propel me up the stairs to the lamp room. What is it? Watch the light, he said, and left. The wind was blowing a gale. Out on the rocks the old man had set his shoulder to the wind, clutching his oilskins close to his chest as he pushed forward along the spit that led toward the old bell. Before long he was swallowed up by the darkness and spray, and I settled uneasily into the wooden chair to watch the lamp, wondering what would happen if he were to drown and leave me locked inside. Would I have the nerve to climb out of the window and cling to the stone like a monkey to a mast? In this weather, any attempt would come to a swift end on the rocks in my life along with it. I could call until I was hoarse, but no one in the village would hear, and even if they did, the lighthouse and its keepers were objects of supreme indifference to them. I had no choice but to wait, soothed by the steady rhythm of the light, until I heard the lighthouse door open again. When McCallan reached the lamp room, he was dripping wet, his usually ruddy face white as a corpse's. The light! You kept the light! His voice was a rasp. I nodded. What was wrong outside? He coughed, a hard bark that ended in a rattling wheeze. Had to check the bells, he said. Go back to your bed. The storm eased a little overnight, and by the time I arose the lamp was out again. I washed and ate, and when I went to wake McCallan I found him still sleeping in his nest of blankets on the lamp room floor. Mr. McCallan, I asked, extending a tentative hand to shake his shoulder. Are you awake? His eyes open, the pale gaze unfocused. The light, he said, his voice thick and rasping. He pushed himself up onto one elbow, but the effort set him coughing until his eyes streamed and he slumped back to the floor, a string of yellow phlegm trailing from the corner of his mouth. Keep the light. I took his words as an instruction and set to work. Difficult enough with two, the maintenance of the lamp was backbreaking alone and when I was finished I was soaked in sweat, muscles trembling at the slightest effort. McCallan was dead to the world, so deeply asleep that he didn't stir when I took the lighthouse key from around his neck and crept away down the stairs. I told myself I was doing this for him. His instructions had been explicit. The lighthouse was to remain locked at all times, with me on the inside. But for all I knew he was dying, and in that case the rules surely no longer applied. There'd be no doctor on the island, but perhaps an herb woman or a midwife could be found to help me tend to the old man until the relief ship returned. The ground when I reached it was damp, but the sensation of earth through the rubber soles of my boots was bliss after so long on stone and wood. A thin plume of smoke was rising from one of the village houses, and a cluster of flaxhead girls started and scattered like rabbits as I approached. As doors opened to admit them, I caught sight of pale round faces and black shawls covering white blonde hair. The villagers were similar enough they might all have been mothers, sisters and daughters. That in and of itself was a curious thought. Though I suppose any number of the children might have been boys, dressed according to some archaic tradition, 
that kept them in petticoats until they were breached. Not a single adult male could be seen. For all I knew, McAllen and I were the only men on the island. I knocked half-heartedly at a few doors, but everyone stayed close to me. They'll not answer. I jumped at the voice from behind. The speaker was a girl, leaning nonchalantly against one of the standing stones that marked the boundary of the village. She wore a homespun dress with a ubiquitous black shawl over her shoulders. Her broad high forehead and narrow nose were similar to the other women, but her hair was dark and hung in damp elf locks down her back. I put her at sixteen or seventeen close to my own age, and her sea-green eyes were bright with curiosity. As for me, I had been alone in the lighthouse so long with only McKellen for company that the presence of another human being was intoxicating. I'm Ian Campbell, I said. She seemed to find that, or me, amusing. I know who you are. You work with the old man. What's your name? Mirren. I repeated the name, turning the syllables over in my mouth. And you're from the village? Where else? She wrapped a lynx strand of hair around your finger. Her features were small and delicate, almost pinched. In Edinburgh I would have passed her by without a second look, but here she was fascinating. Here she was beautiful. You'd best go back to your lighthouse then, she said. Wait, I put out a hand as she turned, desperate at the thought of giving up my freedom and her company so soon. When I came here, there was a ceremony on the beach late at night I wanted to ask. A month ago? She looked at me sidelong, scrutinising. Then her expression opened as the realisation dawned. My cousin had a bairn, her first. I nodded, pretending I understood. Was it a baptism then? Of sorts. She sat down on the wet grass and weighed a stone in her hand before tossing it out into the water. They gave him to the sea. Was the baby stillborn? Perhaps the cry I'd heard had only been the keening of the birds after all. It was a boy, Mirren said matter-of-factly. Boys for the salt, girls for the soil. A living one? Obviously. The sky behind her was bright. But they drowned him, I asked. She shrugged, her indifference absolute. It's not a drowning. We give them to the sea and the sea gives us what we need. She looked at me as if I was the fool for not understanding her. Then her face furrowed into a scowl. Except for my mother, that is. She had to be different. How do you mean? What do you think I mean? She pushed her tangles of black hair, so different to the islanders, out of her eyes and pointed to the lighthouse. The sea wouldn't give her a child, so she found another way. McAllen seemed a more reliable prospect for conception than some nebulous sea gift, I thought, but I kept the thought to myself. Does he... Do you see him ever? He's been here all this time, doesn't leave his tower. Except when the boat comes, except when there's no choice. Maybe when I was little. I don't remember. She set her jaw and met my gaze squarely. I don't much care. He's not well, I said. He's got the shakes, the mercury from the lamp. It goes for your nerves in the end. On the other night in the storm he went out. He went out. Beeran's jaw dropped. Properly out, out of the lighthouse. To secure the bells, he said. I think he was worried they might come loose, fall into the sea and be lost. 
She let out a sharp bark of laughter. The old sorcerer finally leaving his tower. There's a thing. Does he know you're out here? I can't imagine that'd please him much, you mixing with the likes of us, old hypocrite. He's in his bed, coughing, too weak to rise. I came to find, I don't know, a doctor, someone to help. There'll be no help for him here. Was there a hint of satisfaction in her words? Her eyes flicked from the village to the lighthouse, then back to me. I'll come with you if you like. I hesitated. She took my hand and started to walk, tagging me toward the tower. I've a right to see inside my father's house, haven't I? I had grown so familiar with the lighthouse since my arrival that I had come to ignore its less pleasant aspects. Now, in showing it to Mirren, I saw all of its imperfections with fresh eyes from the rust on the rungs that led to the door to the all-pervading smell of lamp oil, bleach and stale sweat. If she noticed, she decided not to comment, taking instead an intense interest in the lighthouse contents. Where is he? she asked. He doesn't leave the lamp, I said, pointing upward. Can I see him? Do you want to? She shrugged one shoulder and set off, padding softly up the spiral stairs. As we passed the threshold to each room, she paused to look inside before continuing the climb. The sound of Macallan's coughing echoed down the stairwell, long, wet, hacking breaths interspersed with wheezy inhalations. At least there was still something to hear. Silence would have been worse. When we reached the top, Mirren put her eye to the keyhole and squinted inside. Can you see him? I whispered. She waved me away with a brisk, irritated gesture. Should we go in? After a moment, she rose and turned to face me. What are you going to do? It was my turn to shrug. The boat's due in a few days. I'd hope one of the women in the village could come to nurse him. I suppose I'll just have to do my best. She laughed loud enough to startle me. Quiet, he'll hear you. What if he does? He's in no state to come after me. She allowed me to lead her back to the stairs. At the front door, she paused. My mother's got books at home. She's good with herbs. I'll have a look, see what I can brew him up for a remedy. He'd be better out of that room, away from the quicksilver, but good luck trying to lift him. I shook my head. I don't think I'd do him any favours if I dropped him down the stairs. At least he'd be quick. She leaned close to kiss my cheek. Then she was clambering hand over hand down the rungs to the rocks below. I'll come back later, she called without looking back. See if you can keep him alive till then. I stood and stared until long after she was gone, the memory of her kiss burning my face like ice. Later came and went, but Mirin did not return. I boiled some pemmican and water and coaxed a few mouthfuls of thin broth into Macallan's mouth. The warmth seemed to settle him a little, though the breath still rattled unevenly in his chest. I lit the lamp well in advance of nightfall, but the air was heavy and the clouds restless, and the thought of another night spent alone was enough to spur me down the stairs and outside again. I took MacAllan's oilskins, heavier and thicker than my own, and picked my way over to the rocks to the main body of the island. There was no sign of Mirren in the village. The gathering storm had sent the children indoors, and the few women still mending nets or weaving creels on the front step melted back inside as I approached. I knocked sharply on the first door I came to, 
and when there was no answer, pushed it open. The woman standing behind it was old enough to be my mother. She resembled Mirren, around the narrow lips, the tight lines of the mouth, though her hair was the usual colourless blonde. Two tiny children peered out from behind her, their bone-white fingers clutching handfuls of her skirts. I'm looking for Mirren, I said. The woman regarded me with flat, green-grey eyes. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to disturb you. Mirren is away. Her English was heavily accented, but the words seemed to come fluently enough. Mr. McCallan, the lightkeeper, is sick. She was helping me. Go back to Amboda, she said. I knew enough Gaelic to translate the word she had used. The old man. But whether she meant the lighthouse or its keeper, I couldn't tell. The storm will not touch you there. Tell her that I'm looking for her, please. Neither salt nor soil, that one, she said. Please. I took the slight inclination of her head as all the agreement I would get. I left the village, but as soon as the row of cottages had slipped out of sight, I doubled back around to search in earnest. The cottages were little more than hovels, each a single room furnished with a table, chairs and basin, with a sleeping area and a curtained-off recess. I took my time and listened closely to each for any sign that Mirren was inside, but not a sound betrayed her presence. Ahead, on the far side of the village, Kylikvar sloped upward, to the uneven pasture where the goats were grazing. There was no place to hide in the sparse heather, and the slope ended in the sheer cliff face. No place for anything but puffins and gannets. Behind me, past the village, the lighthouse was shining against the deepening grey of the sky. It was early evening at the latest, still hours of daylight at this time of year, but the heavy clouds were bringing a dusk of their own. The thought of returning to that silent tower the air thick with oil and turpentine in the rank smell of sickness emanating from the lamp room turned my stomach. Mirren might yet be found elsewhere on the island, if only I had the courage to look. For want of anything better to do, I began to pick my way down the zigzag path to a rocky patch of shore. But before I reached the bottom, a strange ululating wail reached my ears. I thought at first it was the cry of a seabird but I had grown accustomed to the wailing of calls and the rasping laugh of the gannets, and knew it was neither of those. It was the bleat of a goat, one of the hardy mountain breed that clung to the slopes in defiance of the elements. One of them must have wandered down from the hill and marooned itself here. I felt a stab of sympathy for the hapless beast, its situation uncomfortably close to my own. The rocky beach, which I recognised as the one where the weird torch-lit ceremony had taken place, was empty, but a little further along the sea had carved a narrow slit in the cliffside. It stretched back into a cave mouth, the water deep in the centre, but the wall scored with a ledge just wide enough to balance on. That was the sort of the bleat, the cave walls lending the sound a strange unearthly echo. Come on, you stupid animal. There was a sharp rank smell in the air, as though something had been beached inside and rotted. The goat fell silent, and I heard an intake of breath. This time the sound was human. The Lightkeepers by Jude Reed, read by J.K. Shepler. Ewan! The voice was Mirren's, hoarse and cracked, perhaps with weeping. The goat started to bleat again. Its braying whine was deafening in the enclosed space. Where are you? I called, lurching forward in panic. 
My arms pinwheeled as I lost my balance and pitched forward into the water. For one hideous moment I thought I was about to be submerged. But it was only knee-deep, enough to fill my boots with freezing water, but far from the threat of drowning I had anticipated. Keep going, she said. I'm at the back of the cave. Are you hurt? Stranded? She made a snorting noise that might have been a laugh. The tide's coming in. Water's rising. You have to be quick. As my eyes acclimated to the darkness, I could just discern a faint greenish glow in the water where it pooled in the centre of the cave. Is that you at the back? I asked. Hurry! I waded toward the shadow at the furthest, deepest part of the cave. The water was halfway up my legs, and while the incline underfoot was rising, I judged that the tide was already coming in. I reached a hand in front of me and found a vertical metal bar, with the same to either side. Mirren's warm hand closed over mine and I realised that she and the goat were inside a metal cage. What happened? I asked. They left me here. Her voice was bitter. For the sea. For the sea? There's a storm brewing. When it's gone, the shore will be covered with all manner of things. Driftwood, fish, whatever treasures the sea chooses to bring us in return for the offering. And the offering's you. I rubbed at my eyes. It was impossible. The notion that the villagers, her own mother among them, had brought her here to drown. And a goat, in case a girl that's half salt, half soil isn't enough. The key's on the wall behind me. Be quick, there isn't long. A few sloshing steps past the cage brought me to a smooth stone wall. A series of steps had been carved into it, and I climbed out of the water until I was standing on another narrow ledge. This one far higher than the first. Was it my imagination or was the cavern getting lighter? The phosphorescent glow was intensifying and I glimpsed a shadow flit through the shallow water. Too slender for a seal, too broad for an eel. You have to hurry, Mirren said. Her voice was high. The goat's cry was continuous now. I could hear the scrabble of hooves on wet rock as it struggled for purchase. I groped near blind across the wall. I could have cried out for joy when my hand caught on the iron peg driven into the cave wall and felt the key dangling beneath. I have it! Then hurry! Her hands were grasping through the bars of the cage, guiding the key toward the lock. Another shadow flickered under the water, and I glimpsed what might have been the outline of a tail as it flipped and turned. Quick! Ewan! You have to! The key turned, and the door to the cage swung open. The opening was just high enough for Mirren to pass through without stooping, and as soon as she was over the threshold she started splashing toward the ledge. Out of the water, she said. Now, for God's sake. Something massive broke the surface of the water behind us. Mirren screamed and leapt for the ledge. I followed a split second behind one shin bone scraping painfully across a rock. The goat had time for one last terrified bleat. Then with a crashing wave that soaked us both, it was gone beneath the roiling surface of the water. For a dizzying moment, the green light was bright enough to cast thrashing shadows on the cave ceilings and walls and then the water, and the glow both subsided until the cave was dark again. Mirren was pressed close to me. I could feel her shaking with cold or fear, or most likely both. I wrapped my arms around her, and we stood in the darkness until her trembling stopped. What was that? I asked. I felt her shrug. Be glad it only took the goat. What do we do? I realised I was whispering. The cave had taken on the solemnity of the sepulchre and to raise my voice would have been unthinkable. 
the ledge, she said. Feel your way along it, toward the light, and stay out of the water just in case. A thin, pale light was seeping through the cave mouth, and I groped my way along the ledge toward it, flinching at every splash and ripple of the freezing water. Mirin shuffled along behind me. I found myself staring into the water, searching for any trace of green phosphorescence that had silhouetted those strange, elongated shadows. But the water remained inky black. When we reached the shore, I splashed through the last few inches of water to the rocks, dragging Mirin along with me. She seemed to be lagging back, and it was only when I looked down I saw her feet were bare. Red marks scored deeply into the pale flesh with sharp stones that cut her. Do you, should I carry you? I asked but she shook her head. Just get to dry land, I'll be fine. To run off as soon as we were on tussocky grass, she picked up the pace, her bare feet more dexterous than my oversized rubber boots. Where are we going? I asked. She stopped as if the question hadn't occurred to her. What do you mean? I mean, where are we going? You can't go home, can you? They tried to, they tried to sacrifice me she said, spitting the words like they had a bitter taste. When I go back, it'll only be to burn that village to the ground. I decided to believe that she was joking. We can't stay here though, not with the storm coming. And he'll not have me stay at the lighthouse, she glowered at me, as if I were McCullen himself. You'd have better to leave me in the cave. For the first time since I had set foot on Kelkvar, I felt my spirits rise. Yes, but it's not up to him now, is it? I pulled the key out from under my gansy and let it swing in front of her eyes like a hypnotist watch. He'll never know you're there. We can wait out the storm, and when the relief ship comes we can... I didn't know how to finish the sentence. I'd leave the island without a backward glance, not caring whether they sent me back to Edinburgh or out on a rock lighthouse in the Irish Sea. But Mirren belong here. Kylock was the only home she had ever known. And what if she didn't want to leave it, along with someone she'd only just met? I looked up expecting to see her face twisted with scorn, but instead, she was nodding. Leave here in a second. She glanced back at the village, doors barred and windows shattered against the weather. This whole place can fall into the sea for all I care. My fingers stayed threaded through hers as we scrambled across the rocks to the lighthouse. Once or twice she winced as a stone caught the arch of her foot, but for the most part she was as swift and sure as a goat. The lighthouse towered over us, its light still burning, the steady spin of it beating out time as the grey clouds built behind it. I fumbled McCallan's heavy iron key into the lock as a gust of wind almost knocked me from my feet, but Mirren lent her weight to mine and between us we half stumbled, half fell through the doorway, heaved the heavy wooden door back into place and drove the bolts home. Her shoulder was resting against me. I could feel her shivering again, and when I turned her eyes were closed, her lips a dusky purple. I took her hands and chafed them between mine. They lay ice cold and still like the hands of a corpse. You're chilled, I said. She nodded. Come on. I pulled her to her feet and together we clambered the spiralling stairs to my room. The wind was whistling down the chimney and rattling the leaded glass in its frame, but once the fire was lit, it would be cosy enough. I took my spare gansey and a pair of trousers from the chest of drawers. They were too big for her, of course, but they were still warmer than the sodden dress that was clinging to every line and curve of her body. 
My face burned at the thought of offering her a pair of my old grey long johns. I busied myself lighting the fire, keeping my face turned away to spare my blushes more than hers. What do you think? she asked, when the fire had kindled into life. She was sitting on the edge of my bed, the woolen sweater wrapped around her like a cocoon, bare feet poking from the rolled-up legs of my trousers. Do I look like a lightkeeper? I found myself grinning despite myself. You'll do. Her hair was smoothed back from her forehead, and some of the colour had returned to her cheeks. I should go and see to the old man, I said, glancing to the ceiling, a pang of guilt catching me beneath my breastbone. My first thought on returning should have been Macallan, but Mirren's closeness was making it difficult to think of anything but her. It's soft, she said, and hopped down from the bed to stand next to me. I thought it would scratch, but it's soft. She took my hand, still sooty from the fireplace, and guiding it to the wall over her breast. Don't you think so? I think I managed a nod. Her sea-glass eyes were locked on mine as she slid my hand beneath the gansey so that it was cupping the small mound of her breast. Her nipple was hard against my palm. Her skin was still faintly damp. I drew a ragged breath, and then her lips were on mine, my mouth filling with that salt-sweet taste of her. My free hand tangled in her hair. She pressed herself against me, her hip bones sharp like the ribs of a boat as we sank together to the bed. She filled my senses. There was nothing in the room but the smooth perfection of her skin, the firelight of her hair, the ebb and flow of her breath against my cheek. Desire surged through me, rising and falling over and over again until at last it crashed and broke into an ecstasy of release that left me, lying trembling and breathless by her side. Her face was next to mine on the pillow, smiling, drowsy. I kissed her and watched her grey-green eyes close. I told myself I would lie beside her just a moment longer. I woke, sitting upright before I was fully awake. The crash that had jolted me back to consciousness reverberating through the lighthouse. The room was dark, the fire dying to embers, and the bed beside me was empty. I struggled back into my clothes, the damp cloth slapping uncomfortably around my ankles as I took the stairs to the lamp room two at a time. I shouted Mirren's name, but the only answer I got was from the echoing stairwell. Wind was whistling through the tower, and the topmost door was slamming open and shut like a sail flapping in the wind. Mirren! I shouted again, and threw myself into the lamp room. The wind and rain hit my face like a fist. The circle of windows had been smashed, and the heavy black cloth drapes were whipping back and forth with a rapid, dull snapping sound. What light illuminated the room came in quick cold bursts as the storm clouds outside raced over the moon. Even at its brightest there was barely enough light to make out the silhouettes of the room's contents, once familiar, now grotesquely distorted. The lamp should be lit, I thought, panic rising in my throat. It was my duty, mine and Macallan's, but the old man was nowhere to be seen, and the lamp was... The thought was so terrible my mind refused to finish it. I groped into the darkness, hoping beyond reason that the fault was in my eyes, that my hands would meet the smooth metal and glass edifice if I could only touch it. But there was nothing there. A brief ray of moonlight transfixed the room, and in that second I saw the whole mechanism lying on the floor. The lamp broken, the reflector shattered, Spheres of mercury rolled across the floor like ball bearings, blown this way and that by the relentless gusting wind. 
In another flash, lightning this time, I saw a human hand on the lightroom floor. The palm was broad, the fingers blunt nailed and stubby, the wrist ending in a dark coloured woolen cuff. The body attached to it was buried entirely beneath the twisted wreck of glass and metal. The light and the light keeper both were gone. Something cold pressed against my hand, and I yelped, flinching away from the unexpected contact. Moonlight was playing over Mirren's face as she stood behind me. We have to go, I shouted over the wind, and together we ran for the stairs. The stones were slick with rain under our feet, and the roar of the storm only intensified as it whirled down the stairwell. I slammed the door to my room behind us and pulled her close to me. This time it was me who was shaking. The stone must have smashed the windows, I said. Wood, wreckage, something heavy enough to break through on top of the whole mechanism. McCallan, he's... I choked on the words. The old man had been my superior. But he had been Mirren's father, no matter how unsuited he had been to either role. I drew back from her and watched her face carefully. She showed no signs of grief. Instead, she was smiling, her eyes gazing past me to the window out to sea. Dead, she said softly. I know. I turned. What are you looking at? The ship, she said. I followed her pointing finger through the diamond-patted glass to where the light was just visible, pitching and tossing as its ship made its way through the storm. Hope leapt in my breast. I clutched her hands, almost sobbing with relief. The Arbroath! Thank God it's coming! She didn't share my delight. A moment later, I realised my mistake. The light's gone. Out in the Atlantic, the Arbroath was heading at speed toward us, buffeted along by winds and waves towards Kailakvar, on the vicious rocks that would tear the keel out from under it. The lamp was dead, extinguished beyond all hope of recovery, and with it any hope of warning them was gone. My thoughts raced. Perhaps I could take paraffin, soak sacks and wood and bed linen and try to light a beacon. But even if I could assemble a makeshift bonfire in time, there is no chance of a flame taking hold in the wind and rain outside. They'll be wrecked, Mirin said. It took a moment for me to notice that her voice held not horror but satisfaction. All I could do was stare at her, my jaw flapping uselessly. It's a good sacrifice. A sacrifice? She nodded. To the green men. Like my mother said, the sea gives us what we need. And we give it what it wants. A ship full of men now. That's something better than a girl and a goat in a cage. They'll be grateful for that. Her eyes were sparkling. Filled with a bright, unfamiliar hunger. There'll be no more talk of half soil, half salt. Not when my mother sees what the sea gives me in return for this. The lamp, Macallan. The words came out in a strangled burst. Mirren's lips curved in a smile of delight like a clever child being asked to explain how she solved a particularly intricate problem. It was heavy, but I managed. He was most of the way dead in any case. Didn't have the strength to raise a hand, even after he worked out what I was there to do. He was your father. And I made my choice. Salt over soil. She kissed me. Her lips were cold against mine. You should do the same. I ran. I don't know if she called after me, 
but all my lust for the link-head girl and the oversight Gansey was gone. I forced my feet into a pair of Wellingtons, threw on McAllen's oilskins and sprinted out the storm. For a moment I was deaf with the thunder of the waves, blind as the salt spray filled my eyes. I pulled the brim of McAllen's hat down hard over my forehead and pressed myself close to the rungs, half climbing and half falling down the iron ladder to the rocks. When I dared lift my head again, the ship's light was rising and falling on the water, closer now than when I had seen it from the window. I waved my arms overhead and shouted, but the wind whipped the futile words away as soon as they had left my mouth. Above me, the lighthouse was silent and dark. Something rattled in the wind. It was a heavy iron chain, one of the ones that formed part of the crude hand grip between the jetty and the lighthouse steps, and the memory hit me as hard as the metal links themselves. The lighthouse was dead. There was no light for a warning, but I might sound a warning on the great iron bell that had hung before the lighthouse was even conceived. Perhaps not so far-reaching, nor so accurate, but still something. A final roll of the dice that might keep the ship from running aground. I put my shoulder to the wind and ran slithering over the wet rocks until I was wading through shin-deep water, pulling myself along the rail that led along the spit to the bells. It must have been like this for McAllen, I thought, on his last journey outside the lighthouse. Though his had been the first steps toward death, mine might be salvation, and into this nightmare of salt and sacrifice. I reached the first of the bells and tugged at the wood and rope that held it in place. It seemed the wind was my ally, whipping away the net stuffed inside and the cords that bound the clapper, setting it ringing with a clear metallic tone. I freed a second bell, then another, until all the island seemed to be ringing in a deafening cacophony of chimes. The last bell, the great bronze ship's bell, at the far end of the spit, was beneath my hand now, and I clawed at the rocks piled around it till my hands were bloody. At last I had it free and set it swinging on its frame, but there was no sound, no deep sonorous vibration to join its smaller cousins. I ran a hand beneath the rim and found the clapper was gone, eroded away by salt and time. The bell was silent. The ship's light was close now, so close the voices of the crew were carried to me on the wind. In desperation I tore one of the rusting metal rails free from the rock beneath it and brought it around in a great two-handed sweep into the bell. The sound cut through the storm. As the vibrations turned to echoes, it seemed even the wind died away. I struck the bell again and again, adding my howls of desperation to the hellish cacophony of bells, praying and begging for the ship to notice, to turn away, even if that meant leaving me forever on this cursed shore, and the water around me stilled as the bell found its answer in another, lower and louder, that emanated from deep beneath the waves. A green glow rose from the depths, as though a lantern had been lit at the very bottom of the ocean, spreading its tendrils that rippled and coiled like the tentacles of an insubstantial sea monster. Shapes, almost human, cast sinuous shadows as they passed between the light and the surface. Green light was playing across the Yardroth hull, bright enough for me to make out the sailors on deck and silhouette the shoal gathering beneath. As webbed hands reaching for the hull, their muscular bodies naked and sea-slick, the prow of the Yardroth ground into the rocks, the wood shrieking like a living thing, the hole split and splintered. 
The shouts on deck turned to screams. The ship took on water and began its slow descent to the hungry waters below. McAllen had known what I had only just come to realise. The bells had never been a warning. It had never been intended for human ears. And I had been the one to ring it. I had sounded a call to the deep, and the green men had risen to claim what was theirs. That was Jude Reed's The Lightkeepers, as read by J.K. Shepler. J.K. Shepler was born in Texas and raised in Northern California, among the rolling hills of the Coast Range and the oaks of the Gold Country. He returned to Texas for secondary and post-secondary education. He attended the University of Houston, and someone decided to give him a Bachelor of Science degree with highest honors in anthropology. He was hyped to pursue a master's degree in experimental archaeology at Exeter, but decided to retire, thus sparing the British from his accents. He is a two-stripe brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu under Tony Torres Aponte, and haunts various local museums where he sometimes contributes to historical exhibitions or simply loiters. He surfs, throws knives, and scratches out some visual art. He is slated to finish some creative projects sometime in this decade, including illustrating a children's book, and if he ever wakes up, a bunch of other stuff. He sometimes sells fine woolen scarves and old ties, and somewhere, people buy his t-shirt designs and photographs. He, um, rarely pens brief movie reviews, which are written in some sort of bizarre dialect at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com Mr. Shepler has opened for major touring acts and various bands, produced music videos, acted, and has been a general pain in the backside. He is fortunate to be the son of artist-educator parents, and for that he gives thanks. His parents gave him love and taught him to love learning and to be like the warriors and renaissance men and women of old. Artistic, creative, thoughtful, honorable, capable, and well-armed. Thank you, J.K. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters through Patreon and PayPal. If you're not already a supporter, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. If you're looking for another way to help, why not drop a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to show your appreciation and help us spread the darkness. 
Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we comb the depths for more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.